Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. It's good to see the uh, few that are here with us in person. And of course, we want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. I can see Micah in the back waving at me, giving me a thumbs up. He's like, good job, Dad. Thanks, Micah. (laughs) We're living in such an interesting time. And I guess I've been saying this for like two years But remember when, uh, at the beginning of 2021, when we thought the year was going to be great, uh, 2020 was done and dusted, and we thought, things are going to get better in 2021, and then 2021 happened. I saw this this joke on one of my friend's uh, Facebook storylines. It reminded me of how hopeful we were in 2021, but here we are in 2022, and the pandemic is still here. And one could argue things are getting better. Uh, One could also argue that things are getting worse. Um, And the question that's on my mind is, what's going to happen in 2022? What will happen? It's election year, and um, we already see changes happening. What will happen? Today I want to share the story of when God sent a drought to Israel for an extended period of time. I think there are lessons that translate to us as we navigate this pandemic that continues to stay with us. I'm just going to hold this because it's a bit more comfortable. So let me start with some historical context for this story. The history of Israel. So in the book of Kings, there's a there's a time period when there are a lot of changeovers in the nation of Israel. The Bible says that in the second year of the reign of Elah, king of Israel, there's a man by the name of Zimri who is in charge of half of the king's chariots. And one evening, Zimri finds the king drunk at home and he strikes him down. He then goes on to execute Elah's whole family and takes over the throne. When the Israelites hear of Zimri's treachery, they notify Omri, the commander of the army, and he lays, lays siege on the city where Zimri reigns. When Zimri sees that his forces are not strong enough to hold off the army of Israel, he goes into the citadel of the royal palace and he lights it on fire and it burns down around him. Well, Zimri's reign lasted for seven days, and without the king, or without a king, the people of Israel split into two factions. One group supports Omri, as he's the commander of the army, and the second group supports a man by the name of Tibni. And I realize there's a lot of E's in this, and they're not related, they're just, that, those are their names. So as you know, Omri is the commander of the army, and as a result, his side is stronger, and he becomes king of Israel. You can get a feel that this period of Israelite history is not a bright time. There's a lot of changeover. There's social, financial, and political unrest. Well, now that Omri is king, the Bible says in 1 Kings 16.25. Okay, the sermon's done. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Um, Let's see if I can... Okay, thanks, James. Hey, I'm just going to try that one more time. Okay. Oh, well, that didn't work very well. I'll just, I'll let you know when to switch the next slide over. Thanks, James. First Kings 16.25. You know, I'll tell you, I have such more of a deep appreciation for the AV team after going through this for two years. Um, 
All right, First Kings chapter 16, verse 25 says, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. So Omri is known as the worst king in the, in the history of Israel. Not a great legacy to leave. Now, after being king for 12 years, Omri dies of natural causes, and his son Ahab takes the throne. So Ahab ends up ruling Israel for 22 years. And if it weren't bad enough to have a dad that is known as the worst king of the history of Israel... The Bible says this of Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 to 33. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of, uh, excuse me, Uh, He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So not only does Omri pass his son the throne, but he passes on his legacy as well. Kind of passes the torch. Here you go. You get to be the worst king of Israel. So Ahab does several things that gives him this title. One, He marries Jezebel, who happens to be a priestess of Baal. He sets up a temple to Baal in his capital city, and then he builds idols to Baal and Asherah throughout Israel. Now, according to Mesopotamian myth, Asherah is Baal's sister, as well as his consort. The Mesopotamians believed that rain was the way that Baal fertilized the ground, and in order to stimulate the rain, they would build altars on high places so that Baal and Asherah could see the worship, the worship that was taking place. They would place male and female priests and priestesses at these locations, and worshipers would go to visit these holy individuals in hopes that their interactions would cause Baal and Asherah to copulate and send rain. I probably, anyway. So God responds to what Israelite is doing, uh, what the Israelites are doing by sending Elijah, his prophet, to send a message of judgment to Ahab. We read this judgment in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Which says, Now Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I served, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So as Israel worships rain gods, God's response is, I'm going to send a drought until my word says otherwise. Now this sounds like divine punishment, but because the phrase except at my word is used, God's judgment in this scenario is intended to reveal his, uh, his character and power rather than merely punish the disobedient. So that phrase, except at my word, the concept of God's word, it permeates scripture. Um, just as our words reveal our thoughts and our feelings, God's word reveals his heart. There are several aspects of God's word that I want to explore with you. And by creating this portfolio of meaning, I hope that we can have a deeper appreciation for the term God's word. So in first John chapter, or excuse me, in John chapter one, verse one, the gospel of John starts out by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
So the author of the Gospel of John wants us to know that God's word is divine. You're familiar with the term empty words, words that are spoken or written, but they're, they're empty. They have no meaning or consequence. Contrary to this idea, God's word is not empty. That which is spoken or written bears eternal weight. In other words, God's words direct history and thus have the power to direct our lives. So the, the Bible also says that God's word has creative power. So in Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 and 9, the Bible says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the moment he speaks, the moment God speaks, his breath begins to put matter into motion. The Bible says that God's word has the power to create light where there is darkness, life where there is death, and hope and comfort where there is sorrow. God's word has power. John continues in verse 14, John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I knew someone who was giving Bible studies uh, to a family of immigrants who were still learning English. And this person, with all the enthusiasm and emotion he could muster, told the family, the word became flesh. He was expecting the family to be in awe of the miracle of the incarnation of Jesus. He was expecting the family to be in awe of the sacrifice and wonder of God becoming man. But instead, instead, they gave him a look of confusion, grabbed a bowl of fruit, and repeated to him, Fresh? Fresh? My guess is that the family were eager students of the English language, but were still quite unfamiliar with theology. But John's intent here is to communicate that the clearest revelation of the glory, full of grace and truth, is the word which became flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, we read testimonies of God's work in the life of Christ. We see Jesus performing miracles with his hands, his feet, and his presence. But because we're so far removed from the life of Christ and from the lives of all the Bible characters we read about, it becomes increasingly difficult to see, to hear, to touch, and to feel the power of God. So then how do, we become, how do we become witnesses to the power and glory of God, which is full of grace and truth? We become witnesses by internalizing the word of God. While it's true that you and I are not alive, we were not alive to see the works of Christ, we, ha- we can have a firsthand encounter with the word of God. So the phrase word of God is used over and over throughout scripture. God gives us his word so that we can encounter the heart of God, the power of God, and the revelation of who God is. So today we'll look at an example of someone who responded positively to the word of God, and we'll look at an example or a group of people who responded negatively to the word of God. In both cases, there are valuable learnings that can help us navigate this new year in the midst of our uncertainty. We turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. There's a story of 
the prophet Elijah going to this widow of Zarephath in the midst of this drought. The story goes on. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So here, the word of God tells Elijah, go to Zarephath, this widow is going to take care of you. When Elijah meets this poor woman, she is at the end of her life. She's one more me- she has one more meal left, and then she plans on dying with her son. Just for, some, uh, just for some geographical context, Sidon is not in Israel. It's outside of the land of Israel. In other words, this woman, she wasn't a believer in God. There's a very good chance she had never met Elijah. She had no idea who he was. So can you imagine a stranger rocking up to your house and then giving a crazy request? Hi, can I have your last bit of food? Like my response would have been, hold that thought. Ka-jink. This woman puts Elijah first because in her heart, she genuinely follows God. Maybe she doesn't know that God's name is Yahweh. Maybe she doesn't know that Elijah is God's servant. But there's something in her heart that says, this man isn't lying to me. As a result, God sustains her and her son throughout the duration of the drought. And God's revelation to her is, you can trust me. Put me first, sacrifice for me, and I'll give you life abundant. You know, as a result of this woman's decision she gets to spend an extended period of time with the prophet Elijah, probably one of the most significant characters in all of the Bible. Undoubtedly, Elijah would have shared with her many truths that would have just fed her soul. Every day, this woman would have witnessed the replenishment of food and water. She would have seen God provide just enough to get by through that day. At the end of Elijah's stay in Sidon, notice what this Canaanite woman says to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. She says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You know, there are some people who thrive during the lockdowns. I had neighbors who completed massive home renovations. I know some people who completed massive home renovations. <laughs> stayed in shape and made the most of the two hours of exercise that they were allotted each day. 
I was not one of those people. I was just trying to make it. It was so difficult to look outside of my own problems and my own stresses in the moments when I felt like God wanted me to give of myself. When I responded, there was food to my soul. But there were also moments where I didn't give. I refused, but it didn't put me in a better place. During the last year, there were some people like Scarlett and Mervyn who visited Ruth to provide care for her when she wasn't mobile. They went to visit her when she found out her mother had passed away. There were other people like Janelle who drove to Geelong and spent time with Ruth. Sam and Michael also sent Ruth a heating pack for her back. Maggie drove out to Ruth from the southwest, uh, southeast. Excuse me. And many of you sent your uh, many of you sent her encouragement and support. These acts of sacrifice and support make a difference. They breathe life into the world. You know, for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen to Kay's testimony last week, he, sh- he shared about <clears throat> one of the more meaningful moments of his time with our church. Uh, as you know, Kay joined us basically at the beginning of the lockdown, and basically from then on it was just Zoom, it, it was Zoom sessions and live streaming. But he shares about one of the more meaningful moments that he had with our church. After he and his wife got married, James and Kim sent him a card in the mail just saying, hey, congratulations on your, on your, on your uh, wedding, on your marriage. This simple gesture of kindness communicated to Kay and his wife that they're a part of our church and they're welcome here. You know, throughout the pandemic, we received care packages uh, from people Those acts of kindness made such a big difference through a difficult time. There's this principle that Jesus shares in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What God calls you, when God, excuse me, what God calls you to may require sacrifice on your end. But in the end, it will breathe life into you and to the one whom you are serving. This act of service will allow you to encounter God's word. So during the course of this uncertain time, I encourage you to be open to the moments when God asks you to do something for him. Now let's look at a group of people who responded negatively to God's word. Israel and Ahab. Well, just mainly Israel. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. The story continues on. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. I just want to take a slight detour for those of you who appreciate the book of Revelation. 1 Kings chapter 18 covers a story of a showdown that takes place between Elijah and Ahab on Mount Carmel. Now, we learned that Ahab, who is a king, marries uh, marries a woman by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel is a priestess of Baal. Now, these two form a religio-political power that opposes God. And uh, the intro to 1 Kings chapter 18 tells us that they reigned for three and a bit years. At the end of this time period, the prophets of Baal are executed. 
And if you fast forward to the end of Elijah's life, he's translated directly to heaven uh, in this fiery chariot. Now, the story of Elijah follows the story of Revelation, where a religio-political power reigns for three and a half years, receives a mortal wound, and this battle between good and evil ensues. The end of the story is that God's people are translated to heaven. The story of Elijah certainly has applications for the end times, and I realize that for possibly many, these statements have no relevance, but for those of you who are interested in the book of Revelation, this might be interesting to you. So back to the topic at hand. The word of God directs Elijah to present himself to Ahab as it's time for the rain to arrive. Elijah challenges Ahab, the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Asherah to a showdown of fire. The challenge consists of meeting on top of Mount Carmel, which this is a picture of. The name Carmel, it means orchard, vineyard, or garden. And uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the Hebrew, um, oftentimes one word can communicate multiple things, and really it's context that determines the, the actual definition. But several definitions for the name Carmel. And, and the name reflects the fertile beauty of Mount Carmel slopes. If you do a Google of Mount Carmel, you'll see kind of the lush greenery all around, all around this mountain. This mountain had a history of being the center of idolatry. The mountain served as this kind of memorial for the fertile power of the deities. And God chooses this spot to communicate, I'm in charge. So the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah were to gather themselves and make an altar to Baal and ask him to set, uh, set fire to the altar. And Elijah would also build an altar to God and ask him to set the altar on fire. Whichever deity would answer the fire would be considered the true God. As Elijah presents this challenge to all of Israel, the Israelites present are happy with the challenge and they agree to the terms. Here's the account of what happens. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 25 to 29. The Bible says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, and no one paid attention. After the prophets, hollering to Baal and dancing around the altar, Elijah taunts them. I don't think he can hear you. You can picture the people looking on at the 850 prophets cutting themselves, dancing and yelling. It must have been quite the spectacle. When what you worship is more hurtful to you than helpful, it's a good indicator that there needs to be some reassessment. Next, we go to what happened with Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 30 to 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descending 
from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, Lord, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people saw this, and they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah's approach is so different than the, pro- than the, than the ball worshippers. No fanfare is required. Elijah calmly gathers 12 stones, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He arranges the wood and sacrifice, and he pours water over the whole thing three times. Now, last time I checked, water isn't an important ingredient when trying to start a fire. I've never tried to use water <laughs> when, when trying to start a campfire. Perhaps there's, uh, there's a symbolism for baptism. Then when Elijah prays, God, turn these people's hearts back to you, fire comes from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, the water, the stones, the wood, the soil. In light of what I shared with you about ball worship, it makes sense that Elijah didn't request a showdown for rain, even though the problem is there's a drought. Instead, he asks for a showdown of fire. And there's some deep significance here. In in Leviticus, there was a lot of meaning behind God answering by fire. I think this is why God first brings fire before he brings rain. In Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, the text says, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them, and having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of the meeting, When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions of the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So fire from God communicates his presence is near. It also communicates an acceptance of an offered sacrifice. You'll notice in the story of Mount Carmel, Elijah strategically waits till it's the evening sacrifice. He lets the prophets of Baal holler from morning until noon and on and on and on. And finally at evening, he says, okay, it's enough. The timing of the sacrifice that Elijah offers us uh, offers gives us insight into what caused Israel to make such a dramatic change of allegiance. I think generally when we think of miraculous fire coming down from heaven, you would think, yep, That's going to convince the whole nation of Israel. But there's something more to it than that. In Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 to 43, God introduces the idea of the morning and evening sacrifice. 
He says, This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offerings as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and I will speak to you. So Israelite, the, uh, Israel was supposed to offer this morning and evening sacrifice in perpetuity. It was, re- it was a reminder that God was always waiting to meet with Israel. In Leviticus 16 and in other places, burnt offerings were a symbol of atonement and forgiveness. So when Elijah repairs the altar, he communicates to Israel that during this time that they've fallen away, during this time where they ceased the practice of worship, that was to remind them of God's perpetual grace. As a result, when they turn to their own pleasures for comfort, the nation kind of falls apart because their practices are detrimental to their well-being. But when God sends fire, he communicates to those who had turned away, I am still here. Come back to this place so that I can remind you of my grace because there's forgiveness and I will, re- not, I will not reject or abandon you. See, when we feel like our lives are not consistent with God's ideal, I think the natural tendency is to turn away and distance ourselves from God. We do this because this is how normal human relationships work. If you consistently do things that upset the people around you, eventually you get shunned. But the Bible presents a God as a God who practices covenant love. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, it never fails. And it is in remembering this truth that Israel turns back to God and turns away from idolatry because living for God is simply better. The story finishes with Elijah praying and God sending rain. Elijah tells King Ahab, Go back home because rain is on its way. How did you fare spiritually through the pandemic? Did you feel like you grew stronger spiritually? Or do you feel that God was distant? Did you draw closer to God or did you distance yourself from God? Today I want to remind you, or anyone who is watching this sermon, regardless of how you've handled this pandemic, Regardless of how you've handled this difficult time, God wants to be with you. The more you lean towards God in moments where you feel like you failed, the more strength and encouragement he can give you. I encourage you to rebuild the altar. Be reminded day after day that God has not abandoned nor rejected you. For Israel, the drought would have challenged their faith. After one year of drought, God, please send rain, no rain. After the second year of drought, God, please send rain and no rain. After the third year, God, why aren't you bringing rain? Bobby Clinton writes about developing a sovereign mindset, and I talked about this in my last sermon. But in summary, a sovereign mindset acknowledges that God has a purpose in our present circumstance. This, these Israelites had a dependence on Baal and Asherah. 
these man-made deities were supposed to provide rain, and the Israelites heavily depended on this, uh, depended on this man-made thing to bring rain. The drought taught Israel to turn their attention towards God and to trust and rely on Him. What happened was that many in Israel had a change of heart. There was a turning away from the pleasure, comfort, and self-fulfillment that was provided by Baal and Asherah, and a turning towards God in worship. When there is corporate revival of this nature in the Old Testament, it is often uh, it's often um, connected to a renewed practice of love, justice, equality, and mercy, especially towards the vulnerable. In Micah chapter 6, verses 8 to 16, the prophet Micah has commentary of this historical time in Israel. Uh, Micah chapter 6, verses 8 to 16. It famously begins with this uh, charge for justice. He has shown you, O mortal, or O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short if, uh, ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. I realize that was a very like full-on passage of like judgment. And I, I don't think there are 100% parallels between what we're going uh, what we're going through in our pandemic and what's going on in the nation of Israel during that drought. But there are some parallels that I want to highlight. There are man-made institutions that we rely on to provide us a high quality of life. We rely on the government. We rely on the healthcare system. The econ- we rely on the economy. We rely on the police force. And what we're finding is that all these things are limited in what they can do to handle the pandemic that we find ourselves in the midst of. And I recognize at the end of the Bible story, Israel does away with Baal and Asherah. I am not suggesting that anarchy is God's will at the end of this pandemic. This was not my rally cry for Melbourne City and his church to go hit the streets and start, you know, destroying things. What I am trying to say is that the government healthcare, commerce, and the police, these are all very important, but our natural tendency as humans is to prioritize our own goals, our own desires, our own comfort, and this moment of uncertainty and trial provides us an opportunity to assess our hearts. When we can't have what we want, a question that comes to our minds is, God, why is this so important to me? Why are my goals my desire is important. And then the next question is, God, what do you want me to do in my life at this point in time? Is what makes me happy 
adding to my life or taking away life? Is it adding love, justice, equality, and mercy to the world, or is it taking away? Is what makes me happy increasing God's will and breathing eternal life in the community around me? Sometimes the conclusion of this wrestling leads to change. It feels like a significant sacrifice initially. God, if I let go of this thing that bothers me so much, I feel like I'm going to be at a loss. But as you respond to what the Holy Spirit is pressing upon your heart, you will find life. So as you continue to navigate the new year in this uncertain time, seek a revelation from God's word. Be open to the moments when God asks you to do something for him. Rebuild the altar. Spend time with God and be reminded of how he actually thinks and feels towards you as opposed to what you think he thinks and feels towards you. Lean into God's grace when you fall short. Take time to commune with God and allow him to speak to your heart. And may you find what deeper quality of life that God is calling you to step into. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father God, as we find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic, we're starting year number three and uncertain about what the future holds. And Father, during this time where we are challenged by how little control we have of this situation, I pray that you would draw us into communion with you. May we seek your will and ask you, God, what do you want? And as we are open to your spirit, as you speak to us, give us the strength the wisdom, the discernment to be able to step forward and experience life in the midst of this chaotic time where we feel our freedoms are, are lowering our quality of life. May we encounter a revelation from you. We pray this in your name. Amen.